is Sidewalk Skyline Podcast, Season 5, Episode 3, and today we're going to hear from Bernard Tam. Bernard uh, was a uh, workshop speaker at the Our City Scarborough Conference in 2023, and uh, he's a part of a uh, small church called the Living Room Church. And uh, he co-pastors in the Living Room Church, which has... uh, a few locations in Toronto. Bernard and his family reside in Midtown Toronto and his wife Susan and uh, their two uh, children, uh, boys Jetty and Joshua. And learning to live in the urban center has been quite the journey for the Tams, but they're learning daily to see the beauty of the urban jungle. Bernard is passionate about connecting with people and re-imaging possibilities while wrestling with faith and culture. He works part-time with the Alliance as a New Ventures implementer, seeing new churches and new leaders in Toronto. Bernard's also a host of the Canadian Asianal Mission Missional Podcast. And in the neighborhood, you can often find Bernard hanging out in coffee shops where his passion for community and coffee intersects. And uh, so we're going to uh, go and listen to uh, his session at the Our City Scarborough Conference, uh, where he talks about uh, house churches, uh, church planting, and uh, just some of the lessons uh, that they are learning from uh, the Living Room Church. Let's go and listen now. Morning, everyone. I am excited to be here to share with you. Um, I, I think Marcy was telling me this morning, oh, you're doing a workshop on church planting. I thought I was doing a workshop on house churches. Um, neither, regardless of what it is, uh, both of them are very intricately connected in so many ways. Um, but before I start this morning, I just wanted to kind of get a read in the room. Uh, like what brought you to this workshop? Like, what are some of the questions? Like, why are you here today? Uh, you just shout it out. Um, maybe it's like you just want to sit somewhere and this seems like a nice room. You want to see the gym? Ah, no, this is a nice gym, totally. Just want to clear out the, clear out the tables, get a basketball out or something like that. Anyone else? Like, what, what's, what, what drew you here for this conversation? Okay, church planting in an urban context, cool. And, and interested in small churches because that's the majority of churches in urban context, and I think they're really Right, totally, yeah. Because more and more churches are not only in decline, um, but the majority of churches is probably around 100 people. And so what does church look like in the Canadian context? Well, for us particularly, in the greater Toronto context. Um, I've entitled our time together, uh, Church in Three Spaces, because part of what I want to help us also think about is the church planting and, you know, these micro churches is situated in specific social locations. And it is in these social locations that we begin to work out, well, what does it mean to, as uh, uh, Pastor David Wells was talking about, this embodiment of shalom. So uh, this is kind of a, a, a little bit of a workshop, but more of a conversation, um, because I know each of you bring unique perspective and concepts and wrestlings to this larger church planting, house church conversation. And so um, a few disclaimers. 
I am not here to promote house churches. In fact, in the story that I'm going to share about our church, this was not the model we were chasing after, but it was something that God invited us to. Uh, and this is not a critique of any other churches. It's not a critique of big churches, not a critique of you know, different worship styles. This is our journey as a church. And lastly, I don't come to you as an expert, and I hope that's okay. I come to you as a practitioner, someone who is working this out. I don't have all the answers, uh, which I hope is okay as well. But this is a place, I think, where we can work it out together. And so I love the word sojourner because I believe we are on a sojourning, uh, uh, like an adventure of sojourning in God's work together. And we are on this path together. So I hope to share a little bit, um, but I also hope to hear a little bit more. I will not be able to go through all my slides. Uh, I just double checked, I have 52 slides. Uh, so I'm probably gonna cut it in half. If you want the slide deck, you, uh, you can give me your email later and I can forward it to you. So what really defines a house church or a house community or this kind of neighborhood community? As I think about these small micro churches that are beginning to form in our city, you know, some of the definitions could be, it's just small by nature. It's these tiny little churches, like six or eight people, maybe a couple of kids, and they meet in the living room usually. And these are like small, tiny spaces where people gather. One of the common themes I've seen as well is they're very meal-centric. Food is so key. It draws people together. It creates a certain environment and space where people can come. It's very conversational and listening focus. It's not about this sitting and teaching, although there are parts of that, but a lot of it is learning to listen and to engage together, to wrestle with one another, to struggle with one another, to celebrate with one another. And the last one is it's very neighborhood focused. There are, as I had mentioned, very specific social locations that we are situated and rooted in. So I wanna share with you a little bit about like our own journey as a church. Um, I was part of this church probably almost 11 years now. And when I first joined this church, uh, it was a church plant, it was called Midtown Alliance Church. We were located in Midtown. We were trying to figure out what church was and what church is. And it is in this season of wrestling that, uh, you know, we did what every church plant would do, right? We would host a gathering, right, on a Sunday morning in a gym because God knows there's no space for a church uh, in the city. And we just did that week in and week out, and we began to really just do the church thing. And there was a season where we were growing. Uh, you know, we had like 30, 40 people uh, on a Sunday morning, which is really cool. Uh, but then something happened. All of a sudden, the lead team leaves, and we were coming to face, uh, we were facing a conundrum of being church. How do, you, how do you lead a church when all your worship leaders leave? And, and I, to this day, still wonder why they all left at the same time. Um, maybe it's me, I don't know. Um, but it was in that space that we began to pray and wrestle, God, like, what is it that you want us to do? You've invited us to this place. You've called us into this neighborhood. And we began to realize that God has 
challenged us to be a church in a neighborhood that is not looking for a Sunday morning gathering style of church. Being in a high uh, academic community, uh, people from all over, uh, there's not a desire to just come inside a church building, or at least at that point. And so we began this journey of kind of unraveling our understanding of church. There's this sense of dissonance. We were wrestling and struggling with, you know, what is church as a whole? Um, I want to share with you a quote. I have tons of quotes. I read a ton, um, a lot of weird books. Um, but this is a book um, by Andrew Root and Blair Bertrand called When Church Stops Working. So they are wrestling with how they are coming to realize that the way that we do church is not working anymore. And here he writes, and they write, we agree with those who say that there's a problem in the church today. We just don't agree with them that the problem is, not, is, is too little influence, too few people, too fragile beliefs. Much of the North American church is facing a crisis, and our read of the situation is that the lack of influence people and believe is a symptom, not a problem. Effective innovation has not stopped the crisis in the church because the crisis comes from a very place that effective innovation comes from, the secular age. I'm not going to go into secular age. That's probably going to have to be another workshop. But notice what they're describing. It isn't so much the, the, the way we do church. It's not about, you know, the, the influence, the, 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 just the gathering of people. There's something deeper within the very culture that we are church. And secular, secularism is a reality of that. Um, but the question is, in the midst of when church doesn't work that way, how then do we respond? And as a church, during that time, we began to struggle with that. We wanted to see, well, God, what is it then? How do we be church? How do we connect with the people that don't want to come to church on a Sunday morning? I love um, the Macedonian call. You know, if we've read the Macedonian call a lot, we often think about, well, this is kind of where Paul gets called to the Gentiles, right? But notice what happens. Acts chapter 16, verse 13, it was talking about Paul and uh, his co-workers, and they were laboring, they were looking for where they're going to start the next church. And it was, a, it was a, on the Sabbath day, and they were looking for a place of prayer. They wanted to find a place where they would meet the people, that they would start this church. And yet, that Macedonian call was about a Macedonian man calling Paul and Silas to this place. But who did they find? They found Lydia. They didn't find this Macedonian man. So God surprised them in a very different way, and they began to start church differently. And so as a church, you know, we began to wrestle with, well, where are the spaces that people would be wanting to come. You know, it took us a very long process for our whole pastoral team to move into Young and Eglinton. Uh, it's unaffordable. It's super tiny. Uh, it's crazy. We, I lived through 10 years of the Eglinton Crossway, and it's still not done. Well... I, I know someone that works there. He says, maybe a couple years. <laughs> so we began to pivot. We began to realize our neighbors are excited 
to share meals with us, to be in our living room, to begin to embody that in these spaces that we don't often associate church with. But those are and can be the way that God is inviting us to encounter, to bridge and to build relationships with people. And over the course of that, we also began to, to understand our community a little bit more. It's one thing to be an outsider coming in to a neighborhood. It's another thing to be an insider, to actually walk the streets, to meet the people, to understand the needs, to connect deeply with what's happening there. You know, being in Young and Eglinton, and I don't know, how many of you guys are familiar with Young and Eglinton? What are some of the words that you would describe Young and Eglinton? Young and eligible, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was our name before. They're neither young nor eligible anymore. <laughs> Anything else? Rapidly developing. Rapidly developing. All the condos, lots of things happening. Decent restaurants. No good Chinese restaurants. I think a lot of times when we think about Young and Eglinton, we see it as a place that is full of affluence. But when we became insiders, we also began to see a different glimpse of this neighborhood. We saw that there is seventh Toronto community housing situated within a one kilometer radius of Young and Eglinton. We saw an influx of new Canadian families moving into this neighborhood. When I take my kids to school, English is not, is rarely, rarely heard as people are talking with each other. That's what's kind of become of this neighborhood. It's, and, and I think what is significant about the shift and, and, and learning through this wrestling is, well, how then do we see church rooted, connected with the people that God has invited us to serve? I love this process of kind of working that out. Um, Cindy Lee, he, she's a Taiwanese-American uh, theologian. Uh, she wrote this book, Our Informing, and she says, perhaps you've been going through the grueling process of deconstructing your theology, a part of the unforming work that makes us aware of who God is not, who the church is not, and who we are not. I find, however, that constant deconstruction has left my soul with many questions. I'm wondering, what's left? How do we participate with the Spirit in forming something new? My soul needs a creator God who speaks new things into being. And I think our church has actually went through that for a significantly long time because we were struggling with, well, God, like, I just don't know how to do church in this secular community. And it was here that we began to pray and dream and to work out and to experiment. Our house church was an experiment, uh, an experiment that went too long, an experiment that we forgot that it was an experiment and we just kind of kept doing it. But this is kind of where God has led us to. And this is part of the reconstructing process. This is part of the reimagining process. And it took time. I want to encourage us with some things as we think about church today. I think we often think about church as some very rapid change, this kind of exciting change that happens. You know, Acts 2, when, when Peter preaches message, right? We often, we will often say that. And we say, you know, Peter preaches message and a, and a mega church was formed in the Canadian context not American, Canadian context. But if you look at church history, and a great book for that is this book called Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Alan Crowder describes this church, this early church, not as something that's rapidly growing, but it's a slow, 
arduous day-to-day -day building of habits of this community. They were working it out daily as they were in different spaces, which I'm gonna get into, and they were learning how to be this alternative community to their neighbors. And isn't that what the church is about? Isn't that the church? You know, we often say we don't want to talk politics in the church, and this, this might rub people the wrong way, but there is this politic that's happening within the church, this organization of people uh, that's orienting towards a kingdom politic, a politic focused on Jesus. And we're learning how to embody that. I want to share with you, um, you know, just this, this idea, and, and it's kind of cool that um, David Wells was sharing a little bit about that, how we live among people. And we've learned um, that really it's understanding this theology of presence. And Exodus 33, as you may have read, um, Moses goes up the mountain, he's encountering God, he's learning about God, he, he's talking to God, and he's crying out to God that if your presence don't go with the people, I don't want to go either. It's talking about God's presence with the people, amongst the people. And Jesus was that incarnation, this entering and becoming physically present with people. And we, the church, are also learning how to be God's presence by the Holy Spirit, pointing and revealing Christ. David Fitch, in his book, Faithful Presence, he describes faithful presence as this. Faithful presence names the reality that God is present in the world and that he uses a people faithful to his presence to make himself concrete and real amidst the world's struggles and pains. When the church is this faithful presence, God's kingdom becomes visible, and the world is invited to join with God. Faithful presence is not only essential for our lives as Christians, it's how God has chosen to change the world. God's presence amongst his people. And we see that in Acts, as the early believers, they gather, they meet, and as you have seen, you know, this is often quoted where they gather, they broke bread in their houses, ate together, and then they were in temple courts. They embody these different places. And for us, I want to, you know, like take this part of the conversation to go a little maybe more uh, theological, um, just to set the stage. There's a, in the same book, Faithful Presence, David Fitch describes these areas and spaces that the church actually dwells in, that embodies, that lives out that faithful presence. And he would describe, you know, the ones, the closed circle, uh, it actually shouldn't be completely closed, is a close, intimate circle. It's talking about Jesus as the host inviting us. Jesus drawing us to this place, kind of like the communion table, where we are breaking bread, we are listening to God, we are worshiping God together. And if we think about that, this is usually the best place that we have done as Christians. We know this place, very comfortable with this place. We do it every Sunday or Saturday or Friday if, or whatever day you gather. 
but he also talks about a dotted circle. A dotted circle where Christians are the hosts, that we are seeking to embody and create space where the kingdom of God is encountering others. But it is in this dotted circle that our neighbors can flow in and out. It is in this dotted circle that people can come and experience what it means to this, this kind of radical love that Christian has for one another, this generosity, this hospitality that Christian has. And I argue we don't do horribly in that space, but it's harder to define for us. But what is probably the most hardest space is the last one, the half circle space. Christians, we are also guests in the world. See, there's something very important about that because there are power dynamics at play if we actually unravel this a little bit more. Learning to be guests means we are almost powerless. We are being invited. We are guests. We don't hold the conversation. We don't hold the space. It is not us who hold it. But we learn to enter into these spaces together. And to be the added challenge to thinking about this is, it isn't just you who's going into these places. It is the church together, collectively, learning to embody, learning to be the faithful presence in these places. Our church has taken some of these and kind of put it to our contacts. Um, you know, the communion table, the dinner table, coffee shop table. Um, I, I, know, I know Kevin was saying there's a theme going on with coffee. I am a coffee geek, um, probably too much so. Uh, you can talk to my wife about that. Uh, but we want to begin to imagine, you know, what are these places like? You know, one of the things uh, about the dinner table that has been happening recently at our church is uh, just the intentionality of opening up space begins to kind of cultivate this how the church begins to move between these tables. Um, so I'll tell you a story. I was uh, at a kid's birthday party, um, and just talking to different parents, and some of them, many of them are newcomers. Actually, it was funny, because my, my son, who's Pan-Asian, he's uh, Chinese-Korean, or Korean-Chinese, uh, whichever ones you want to go first, uh, he is the most Canadian one in the room, which is wild. But that is our neighbor. That is our city, actually. And it was there that we met one of the neighbors. We started talking, and uh, it was fun, oddly funny enough. We were just chatting, and, and she thought, for whatever reason, that I was a sports counselor. And I was not sure what a sports counselor is uh, to start, um, and I'm totally not athletic. Um, but we started talking, and then I shared with her that I, I'm actually a pastor of a church I, I, you know, in this neighborhood and whatnot. Uh, and then out of that conversation, you know, she started to share with me, you know, some of the journeys that they have had, and they were looking for a church, they were interested in church, they have left church and now wanted to come back and want to explore church, but just haven't found that space. And out of that conversation, you know, she became a part of our church and joined in in our church, and we are like literal neighbors, like, like we're like two, because like, I live in a townhouse complex and they're like a couple, couple of houses down from us. And what is kind of amazing, you know, because this is out of a guest circle, right? The half circle, I was out, a guest at a birthday party. Out of that, that we started to build relationship into the dinner table. And out of the dinner table, this family's beginning to join us in the 
communion table. But what's cool is now that we are friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're learning now to go the other way again. In our, our neighborhood, we have a lot of people, um, but a lot of people, you know, they don't, they, they like the idea of hanging out and connecting, but they don't like the idea of actually organizing it. So uh, when we first moved into the neighborhood, we threw ourselves a welcome to the neighborhood party because nobody knew us, right? So nobody's going to throw us a party. So we threw ourselves a party. So we were like, we're new here. We're going to throw ourselves a party. You're welcome to come join us. Bring some food. Bring some beverages of your choice. We won't say what kind of beverages. Um, and it was just kind of amazing to see all the different neighbors that came out. So this last summer, uh, one of my neighbors came up to us and said, hey, like, are you going to host that thing, the thing you host, you know? And I was like, you mean like the role party thing? And then he's like, yeah, yeah, are you going to host that? I was like, well, I don't have to host it. You can do it too. Um, but somehow, uh, over the years, we've become the party people, the people who host parties, um, which I'll, I'll take that uh, over anything worse. Um, and we held this party, and our, our, our dear friends, neighbors, who are now part of our church, was with us. Now, together we are seeking to embody back hosting, but also kind of blurring the lines between these spaces. And so it is sometimes in these kind of strange places that the church begins to move back and forth. And I want to share this with you because I want us to think about and consider, you know, we as, as Christians in our churches, what spaces are we most comfortable in? What spaces do we learn to kind of explore and build into? And where are the other spaces of you know, learning to be guests and learning to host? And this, even this middle table, it's not about a Bible study. You could have Bible study. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Bible studies. But there's other spaces that we also need to dwell where people can just experience God's presence in a community. And so I want to encourage us uh, to think about that and think about these spaces. Um, I was going to go through like a ton of observations and stuff that we've learned. Uh, I think there is like a ton of stuff. I'll try to breeze through it quickly so that we have some time of conversations and back and forth because I think that's some of the richest parts of it. Uh, so a couple of things that I would encourage us to think about, church planting or house churches or wherever, or maybe it's a replant, I don't know. Um, wherever God is challenging you, you start with a why. For us, it wasn't a house church that we wanted to do. For us, we just wanted to be faithfully being present in our neighborhood. And it was house church that we ended up landing on. So starting with a why is key. Because don't start with a model. Because models can change. And models are not set in stone. Begin with where God is guiding and leading. Begin with the people um, which I'll have that uh, a little bit later on. Um, and the other one, you know, to consider and to kind of wrestle with is be open to the imaginative, to imagine space, to imagine what if. Instead of, going with, instead of going with what is, go with what if. What if your church acts like this? What if your church moves like this? What if all of that is different? Um, uh, I won't go into the quote. The gift of sci-fi. 
I know John's favorite space operas. Sci-fi stretches our imagination. It pushes us to think about things that are impossible. And it's interesting that it's only in the sci-fi world that we have that, but not, in, not really in the Christian world. Maybe we need to learn a page from our, our, our sci-fi novelists and thinkers and these artistry, because God is leading us into those places, into the new places, to reimagine things. Isaiah 43 has been a key verse in my own journey and how God is doing something new. He's creating things that are not possible, and yet this is the place that God's calling us to. Uh, I also want to challenge us to think about who God's placed in our, our lives. We're not here to get the dream team. You know, for anybody that follows NBA, uh, there's only one dream team, right? We won't say which one it is. But we often think about the dream team. We want to have a specific team, like we have all these perfect people to launch. But just be open to who God would bring. Be open to the group that God has placed and begin to think differently about how you lead. It isn't, you don't need to find a church planter to start a church. You need a group of people that is committed to a community and learning the unique giftings that God has placed in this, this small community and begin to embody that. That polycentric leadership is so key. Uh, and a great resource on some of that is uh, the 5Q Central um, by Alan Hirsch, where he kind of unpacks some of the five-fold giftings. And I, and I actually do believe it's not just the five-fold giftings. That's just a way to help us think about and wrestle with the giftings within our church, in our community. And, but then the more important part is how do we utilize that? How do we empower that? How do we unleash that? For far too long, our churches focus so much on the shepherd teacher. But I don't think we actually lean in on the apostle or the prophet. And I think the prophet in particular is able to show us the situations and the, the circumstances that are around us, the injustices, the wrongs, the, 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 the places margins, the places of opportunity. And then the apostles are usually the weird, crazy ones that kind of think about weird, crazy ideas. Uh, and they usually have six in their back pocket as well. Uh, so you don't want to give them too much time. And as we as a church thought about this, and we think about our house churches, we were like, well, what kind of leaders, leaders do we want, do we long for? And we kind of came up with this kind of simple rubric that there is an intercessor, a shepherd, and a deacon. Every house church, if they have these kind of basic leaders, they will kind of help shape and empower the others with their unique giftings to live that out. Uh, and I have to confess, we, it's hard. Because sometimes you've got to cultivate some of these leaders. It's not, it's not like overnight you're going to just, God's, well, God might bring you some of those leaders. But sometimes you've got to cultivate them and develop them. And I also challenge us to rethink about worship. Worship is almost becoming like a golden calf. Like we have set it up in a way that this has to be the way that we worship. And I love liturgy. Like I grew up high church uh, as a Catholic. So I love liturgy. But the more that I wrestle with worship, the more I realize that the worship that we are hosting 
needs to represent and connect and engage with the community and with the people that God's invited us to serve. You can't tell different stories, it won't make sense. You know, I was thinking about this and it's like, you imagine like you're watching Schindler's, Schindler's List. Um, is this too old for, for some people? It's a, it's a, uh, it's a movie about uh, Second World War. Imagine watching this heavy movie and all of a sudden like the, the Peanut song, like from Snoopy started playing in the background. Like, what is this? But we gotta think about our worship, how we set the liturgy, how we shape how to walk people through the story of God uniquely in our context, in our community, with the songs that we choose, with the way that we pray, with the way that people are sent off. All of these are elements of the worship that we need to rethink. And what if worship was more like this, over a meal? You know, there's a growing movement called the dinner church and people who are doing church over dinner. That's a reimagination of what worship is like. What about if it's outdoors? What if we meet church outside? You know, COVID, you know, is horrible, but it also forced the church to rethink. If we so choose to recognize that actually God's providence is to challenge church to rethink. And during that time, we actually, as a church, did a lot of picnic church um, because we have a, a lot of people who are immunocompromised and, and, and you know, just the overall health worries. So we decided, well, let's do a picnic. Let's meet, meet in the park. And we were reimagining what that's like. And in the park, I don't think we're going to bust out like a full band, you know, uh, smoke machines, smoke, smoke machines, smoke machine. We're not going to do any of that, but we've got to rethink what worship is. Um, and then learning to tend to the spaces, like learning to recognize the communities and the spaces that God has invited into. You know, I, I've shared the three spaces, you know, the close circle, dotted circle, and a half circle. And there is uniqueness to those, those, those different circles in our community and its intention where we, we actually embody. Uh, one of the things that I thought a lot about too, you know, uh, I'm a coffee geek, so, I so I'm so picky with my coffee that I wouldn't even drink Starbucks. Like, I, I really, really don't like Starbucks. But then it also made me think, well, if I'm only in these kind of bougie coffee shops, I'm actually not going to be able to connect with other people. I won't be able to meet those who are regulars at Tim Hortons or McDonald's. Actually, McDonald's coffee is pretty good. Um, but learning to be intentional in the spaces that God invites us to, to recognize that, you know, maybe it isn't just these uh, high-end coffee shops. Maybe it's also the McDonald's. And these are the spaces that God invites us to and the spaces that we can connect with our community. Uh, in our neighborhood, you know, I often joke, like, the, the dogs and kids. If you want to get to know the neighborhood, well, only if you're married, though, if you have, want kids. I, I would encourage that. Um, but dogs and kids are like these unique places where we can connect right into the neighborhood. Um, I found this uh, short story by Erin Oxford from the Dale in her blog, how she talks about the everyday life, kind of reveals to her the needs in the community. And she was talking about meeting this lady, Shannon, that panhandles uh, at, outside the Dollarama in Parkdale. 
And it is out of that daily occurrence, daily connection, that they start to foster a relationship. And these are the places that sometimes maybe we don't even think about. You know, who would think about connecting with someone at Dalarama? Maybe you do, and that's kind of cool. But what are those places? And the last one that I want to, uh, or second last one, is cultivating a social liturgy. A lot of what I had talked about, you know, um, you know, these missional spaces, uh, you know, rethinking about worship, um, they're all collective things. But they also point towards uh, how we, we need to begin to rethink how we rhythm our lives together. And I'm probably talking to some of the most busiest people in our city. And I get it. Uh, I also live a very crazy and bizarre life. But then if God has placed us in this community to be his witness, we got to be intentional. We got to think about how we make even the sacrifices so that we can make space and embody this together. And this, this aspect, this cultivating a social liturgy, is so key. Because it is in these places of margins that you can actually enter and tend to the people of needs and tend to the needs of different people, to enter into the lives of people. And I'd encourage you to work this out with your community, with your house churches, with your leaders, to figure out what that looks like. And the last one, I believe that we are called to really embody this hope. And I want to end off with this because a lot of what I talked about is like very, so theological and you know, so impractical in some ways. But at the end of the day, as your community gathers, do you offer this subversive hope? Subversion means it is almost counter-political. It is challenging the current power structures. It is giving a fresh and different perspective. And our churches are meant to be that. We're not meant to look like the rest of culture but we're also not meant to look like angry people in our community. We offer a subversive hope. That is the gospel. And I love in Acts 11 how the earliest Christians, they were known as Christians in Antioch, this idea of them being little Christ. Why are they so weird? They're like these little Jesuses walking around. Many may have seen that as like, you know, maybe, uh, it's, it's like defamatory. But if you think about it, it's really a high honor that this early Christian community, you know, they were recognized as little Jesuses. And so I encourage us uh, to think about this kind of idea of subversive hope. Um, you know, we have tons of stuff that we haven't worked out. Uh, we're still figuring out what children, what to do with children in house churches. Uh, it's super tough. At one point, 100% of the children ministry was my elder son. You know, like he was 100%. We're like, you know, when we were do the church surveys at the end of the year, they're like, oh, how many children do you have? We're one. Um, we're growing now, so that's why we have to figure it out. Um, and I think what keeps us really humble during this time is we don't have it all together. We're still learning. We're still trying to figure a lot of this out. And in our neighborhood, like we, we are very intentional in this neighborhood, but it's also unaffordable in this neighborhood. So what do you do when people move out? Do you cast them to a different church? 
or do we seek to reimagine what that's like? So there's a lot of questions that we're still working out. Um, I uh, will come back to this. I had a, a blessing that I wanted to share with you guys. Um, I'll come back to that, but I wanted to also highlight a couple resources that if you're interested to think about small churches. Simple Churches is a network of house churches from Vancouver. So they have a lot of resources that teaches about house church, how to be house church. Uh, they actually have some teachings. I'm part of the teaching team. I'm not part of Simple Churches. Um, they're friends of mine. Uh, from the US, the, the bottom two, uh, well, the bottom right is not really just US, but uh, Tampa Underground is a huge house church network that has tons of resources. Um, the EFC has also uh, recently published a small church uh, survey. That's also a great resource to look into. Uh, and the last one, the Table Co Cooperative, um, is a conversation that I'm a part of uh, with a couple other practitioners of, well, how do you do church? Again, same posture, we don't have all the answers, but we're seeking to learn together. Um, and so with that, uh, I want to give us some space for conversations, thoughts, reflections, lots of, Godfrey? Some of, like, like some of these models, like this model that now relies on smaller churches. Um, so the question is, what is the role of clergy in some of these different ways of church? I'm going to answer that question, um, but disclaimer that this is my perspective. Uh, I think there, there is a role for clergy uh, in such churches, because I think there's still um, people who are disciplers, people who are teachers. Um, I think they still play that role. But I'm seeing more and more that there is also the practice of multivocational pastors, because not only can these small churches not afford a full-time staff, um, but more and more pastors can also get disengaged from actually connecting with people. Um, so maybe what I'm seeing is the possibility of a plumber and a pastor. Like that's your vocation. You're actually blessing the community, but yet you are also pastoring on the side, uh, or pastoring, but then plumber on the side. Um, I do agree, too, that the priesthood of all believers will become more and more as well, that we are not just relying on the pastor to be the sole preacher. The God's empowered the body at large to teach and preach in different ways. And how do we then cultivate a lay team of preachers uh, 
you know, empowering others to come alongside. Um, and the other role that I think the, the professional clergy plays in the neighborhood too, I think, and I, and I know that we think that Canada is very anti-Christian, but actually more and more, I think there's a curiosity to Christians. And particularly in Toronto, like there is not an animosity towards Christianity, really. If you actually get to know people, there's actually more of a curiosity. Uh, I have friends in Vancouver that has a very different story, that's very antagonistic. But because it's more cu curious, you can also play a role in nurturing you know, these different spaces where the church can connect. Um, and I sometimes wonder if we are also called to be um, neighborhood chaplains because our role is in our neighborhood and we are actually learning to tend to and shepherd people in a different way, listening to their hurt, entering into the different stories, you know, sitting on the, on the boards that nobody wants to sit on, right? Those are some of the spaces that the vocational pastor is also invited to. Yeah, go ahead. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Like, how do you manage needs as your church begins to grow, right? Um, we, we are still wrestling with a lot of that, right? Like, I shared that children ministry was 100% my older son. 
Uh, and then all of a sudden we have like a ton of toddlers and, 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 and elementary school kids and whatnot. So we were thinking about that too. Um, so some of the tensions uh, um, that I would encourage for us to think about is like, is it, is it really a need? Because I think a lot of times when we think about the needs, like I don't, I'm not sure if that's really a need, um, or if that's our preference, or that's you know our Christian cultural sh uh, shaping of how we understand church. Um, and there's kind of I'm not saying that all of it are. I'm just saying that sometimes we need to work that out. Um, and I would say you know part of our church as we wrestle with this too. Um, We've often wrestled with like, what happens if we get to 100 members? And I hope my church have captured the DNA that we wanted to shape is that if we ever hit 100 people, we would, we would, we would cultivate a different network of house churches. Because there's an intentionality behind why small is good. Because once you hit a certain size, you won't be able to know the whole community. And it's actually, could be detrimental to that, that community. Because you know, a lot of what I just describe is, is this embodiment. You can't live that embodiment with a thousand people. It hits a certain ceiling. Um, but at the same time, you know, we talk about house churches, which is, which, what is kind of nice about house church, like it's automatically you know when you need to multiply. Because when you look around the living room and there's no space for anybody else, you know it's time. And so I think some of these are the tensions to kind of work out. I don't, I don't think that there is a simple answer. It's something that as a, as a leadership, as a community, you've got to wrestle out. What are our preferences? What are our needs? What is our hope? Where is God inviting us? Like maybe, maybe God is calling you to get a building and, and you know, start a worship uh, in that way. Uh, I have five minutes. Okay. Uh, and so, so that's, uh, I hope that answers a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. So, do all the same sort of rules apply to move-in ministry, apartment complex, or something? Would that, would that change anything at all to what you're saying? Uh, can you unpack that a little bit more? What do you mean? So, is the environment different versus like a townhouse or a, you know, a place that you're, you're renting versus renting an apartment complex where it's a lot, you know, spaces are more confined? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that is part of the contextualization question. Because, um, like, even in condos, you have party rooms, you have lobbies. Like, there are unique spaces that you can kind of tap into. So uh, we, we started building relationships with uh, some of the senior subsidized housing. Um, you know, God provided a, a chaplain that we were working with through the pandemic, and she built tons of relationships. And it is out of that that we were thinking, well, what does it look like to, to form a house church in these uh, subsidized housing? Their units is tiny. Like, there's no way you can really gather. But they have these common rooms that whoever, like, lives there can utilize. And so we kind of re really need to recontextualize what that space is like. Um, it could be, you know, connecting with some you know, local restaurants and whatnot. Uh, I was out in Waterloo, uh, the church, Uptown Church, um, that means downtown, up, the downtown's called uptown, uh, what, for whatever reason. Uh, 
anyways, so they act, their, their young adults actually meet in this room up in this bar, right? And again, it's like, how do you contextualize the space that works best with the people whom you're connected with? And you know, in a movement, there might be some other spaces. There might be community centers, there might be neighborhood rooms, or uh, you know, even a coffee shop or something like that. And so it's, it's about that uh, working out of context. Um, does, does that help a little bit? One last question, comments? Sorry, say that again. This quote. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, like, for us, it has been that intentionality to move into the same neighborhood, uh, at least walking distance uh, to each other um, within about 15 minutes or so. Um, but one of our pastors, uh, he actually, he moved five times in seven years. And in between, he had two kids. And so, can you imagine the craziness? Uh, and, and so I think when we first started, we were very, very intentional. Like, no, no, everybody has to move in here. And actually, what was cool was some people actually captured that vision and actually intentionally moved in. Um, and so we still have a core that meets in the Young and Eglinton uh, neighborhood. But as we are seeing people kind of move out, we, then we were like, are, are there pockets of people that are also close by? And can we also be intentional in seeing, well, how do you embody that in that neighborhood? and then begin to contextualize, well, what are the needs there uh, and the spaces that are there and you know, where are the half circles that you guys can, can be in together. Um, and again, like, this is a, a work in progress. Like, we're still trying to figure that out. Um, Toronto is a very unique city where we are locationally like, schizophrenic. Like, we're disconnected totally. You, know, you think about it, I work, you know, some people can be working in Markham, but playing downtown, but I live in Bonn, right? Um, but that's a norm, right? So in one way, you know, the subversion could be, no, scratch that, we're just, gonna, we're just gonna stay here, right here in Liberty Village. And you could, there'll be some people who will capture that. But maybe being open to like, well, if God has spread us out these ways, what, what is our intentional gathering, what does that mean? And then as we are scattered, what, is that, what does that mean? Right? And in us we scattered, who is God inviting us to embody that with together? Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that helps. Um, well, thank you for coming here. I want to just quickly um, give you a blessing. Uh, this is uh, an encouragement. Uh, it's called The Blessing of Hope. It's a poem by Jan Richardson. Uh, I want to use this as a prayer over you over all. So may we know the hope that is not just for someday, but for this day, here, now, 
in this moment that opens to us. A hope that is not made of wishes, but of substance. Hope made of sinew and muscle and bone. Hope that has breath and a beating heart. Hope that will not keep quiet and be polite. Hope that knows how to holler when it is called for. Hope that knows how to sing when there seems little cause. Hope that rises us from the dead. Not someday, but this day, every day, again and again and again. Amen. Thank you. On the next episode of Sidewalk Skyline Podcast, I'm going to be talking with uh, Reverend Gary Stagg. Uh, Gary was a pastor at Heartland Church in Toronto. Uh, he was on staff at Queensway Cathedral. He's been in uh, pastoral ministry for decades. Uh, but uh, in the last uh, uh, season, he's been working with Open Doors Canada, strengthening Christians where faith costs the most. Do you know that more than 365 million Christians face high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith in Jesus? Well, Canada is not on the world watch list for persecution. Uh, however, uh, there are uh, many Christians from persecuted uh, places in the world that are coming to Canada as asylum seekers uh, refugee claimants uh, and uh, through immigration and uh, it's important for us to have this conversation because we need to know what our brothers and sisters uh, that are uh, our new neighbors uh, have been dealing with and uh, so it should be an enlightening conversation and a sobering one as well so come back uh, and uh, listen to our next episode uh, until that time, I'm your host, Kevin Rogers, and you've been listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast.